Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 17 today, and we're kicking off a brand new series uh, called How To. How To. In this brand new series, uh, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at how the church is supposed to look like or resemble Christ uh, to not just the body itself here within these four walls, but also outside of here in the context of, of our community, our circles of influence. And so um, I don't know how long, uh, you may be thinking, uh, Pastor, how long are we going to be in this series? I don't know how long. Uh, we're going to be in this series until the Holy Spirit tells me to do something different. Um, and so, hey, thank you. Amen, church. Amen, church. And so today I want us to do more of an introduction and, and I want to talk to us a little bit about what, uh, what this entire series is going to mean for us as a church. And, and before we get started though, I'm going to ask a question and I need you to incriminate yourself this morning. Um, I, need, I don't need to know the situation, don't voice it out loud, I just need a show of hands, balcony, uh, down, down here, main level, I just need a show of hands. Have you ever eavesdropped on someone's conversation? All right, most, most of the hands, most of the hands went up. Um, you know, like you, you were in a conversation with somebody and you kind of acted like you were listening to the person in front of you, but in all reality, you were, you, you were monitoring with your hearing radar the conversation of somebody else uh, and you were listening to every single word that they said. I mean, some people are so good at talking to one person but overhearing another conversation outside of their conversation and then you don't even really know what the person in front of you was talking to you about anybody anybody know that resonates with you you know there there's something intriguing this morning There's something interesting and almost irresistible when you see two people having a serious conversation and it makes you want to just hover. It makes you want to listen in just a little bit to find out what's going on. You know, as I I was reflecting upon this thought and how I was going to open up this sermon, I I began to to have these thoughts in my head about eavesdropping on another's conversation. At first thought, I was like, well, it's kind of human nature right? We, we want to hear what's going on, even if it doesn't, like, it doesn't have anything to do with us whatsoever. We want to know what's going on. But then I started to think, well, maybe we're just really nosy people. Maybe we're just really nosy people. And then I was like, maybe though, just maybe, what if there's a deeper reason for that? What if there's a deeper reason you know, in, in many cases, the reality is, is that when people see other people having a close and intimate relationship or a serious relationship, we long to be a part of something just like that. Whether we admit it or not, we long to have that. You know, most people in our culture today are longing and even yearning to be in relationships with someone who will listen to them, someone who will love them, someone who, who will be there for them. Church, the reason for that, and the reason for that today is that the deepest and longing, the deepest longing in a person's heart is to have a relationship with God. That's why that is. Every person longs for that relationship. And the good news today is that God made that possible because of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? 
It's called salvation for us. And when we accept his offer of salvation, we become a part of God's family, which is the church. It's a community of believers, of people, in which relationships are supposed to be built. Would you agree with that? It's a community in which relationships are supposed to be built. It's a community in which relationships and lives are to be strengthened and the lost are to be reached. That's what the church is to be about. And God lovingly and he purposefully placed each one of us right here in this specific community in this speci- for such a time as this. Amen, church? We're all here for a specific purpose. And so together... The Lord challenges us as a church to grow spiritually. He challenges us as a church to discover our giftings, to develop our character, but really to show the world what God intended life to look like and what it will be one day for all of eternity for those who are with Him in heaven. Church, I want you to write this down if you are a note taker. The church is to be a preview of God's kingdom coming to earth. The church is to be a preview of God's kingdom coming to earth. Uh, let me ask this question. How many of you like watching movies? You like watching all five of you. Great. Um, let's be honest. How many of you like to sit down and watch a good movie? It doesn't matter what it is. You like to sit down and you like to watch a good movie. Now, have you ever watched a, a movie trailer before it came out? And the sh- it showed you just enough to make you want to see that movie. Like, it gets you thinking about what's going to happen. What's it going to be like? And you start to have these thoughts like, oh man, I bet that's going to be a great movie. Especially when you've heard about it and you haven't seen any trailers yet. And then they start to come out and you're like, man, that looks exciting. I want to get a group of people to go. Or I want to take my spouse with me and go to this movie. Now, probably not much anymore because they don't come out with edifying uh, movies anymore, it seems like. But... um, there's this time when movies would come out and people would get excited because they would see the preview. And it was the preview really that drew you in to watching that movie. You, you see, church, God's people, you, you and I, uh, I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to look at your neighbor. I want you to say you and I. And I want you to turn to your other neighbor and I want you to say you and I. Right? You and I are to be showing people what God's kingdom is to look like. People should look at the church and say, I want to be a part of that. People should look at the church and say, man, I want to see and experience what they are seeing and experiencing. And that the preview of the church, the lives of the believers, is one thing. But you know, sometimes the preview is way better than the actual movie. It's way better. You know, I've come to find in my 33 years of life that sometimes Christians portray a pretty good snapshot to people. But then we, we get people drawn in and they come into the church because they see snippets of our life, but sadly too many people have found that it's just like a good preview. And they get into the church and it's a poor movie when they get here. It's a poor movie and nothing is portrayed like the way that one person previewed the church to be. You know, I found that it's not the culture that's hurting the church for the most part today. It's God's own people acting like the culture that hurts God's church today. Not the culture itself. You know, we, we come to church 
and we call ourselves Christians, but if our character is still so much like the culture and not like Christ, then we end up sabotaging the very work in which God wants us to do here in our communities and in our circles of influence. I wonder if we ever took a step back and we thought, a man, is what I'm previewing about the Christian life and about church sabotaging what God wants to do in the life of another person. Do you know Jesus knew that this very thing would be an issue for people? And so he began to pray before his time was done on this earth for the church. The the passage that we're about to read today is one of the longest prayers ever recorded in the entire Bible. One of the longest prayers. It's even more detailed than the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave to the disciples. And I believe that it reveals the heart of Christ. His passion is going to be poured out in this prayer uh, to the Father. And you know, the incredible thing is, is that when you and I read this passage, we discover that Jesus has prayed for us as a church. Jesus has prayed for us, the well, right here in the Bible. He's prayed for you as individuals. So I want you to look uh, with me at John chapter 17. You know, the first eight verses here, Jesus is praying to the Father, a very personal prayer. And then in verse number nine, he completely shifts his attention to something different. And so uh, today, as your pastor, I'm giving you permission to eavesdrop on this prayer by Jesus uh, to the Heavenly Father. So let's pick up in verse number nine. He says, I, Jesus, am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you are or that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be as one, even as we are one. And verse 23, I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in 
them. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, and and we thank you so much for this prayer that you prayed for us over 2,000 years ago, knowing that the believers would need some encouragement, some example to live by, not just how to pray and what to pray for, Lord, but the benchmarks that we will see in how we are to live our lives. And so, God, I'm asking you in this place that you would help us to unite underneath these truths that you teach us here in the text. God, illuminate Scripture for us uh, today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen and amen. You know, there's an overarching theme here in this passage, and that is that the church, God's people, would have an unbroken unity and close intimacy with God and with other people. Jesus here in the text is in essence asking the Father that we as his people would experience the exact same closeness and even the intimacy that Jesus experienced with God the Father. You know, that there would be an undeniable and unbroken unity. He didn't pray for uniformity though. We don't see uniformity in the text. There's not some external display through some sort of dress or ceremony or ritual or even some special speech that Jesus prayed for. He prayed for unity. Church, I want you to write this down. Unity is Christ-like attitudes, affections, and actions demonstrated towards one another. That's what unity is. That's what Jesus was praying for. And that is what the world is to see. Christians acting like Jesus. You know, behaving in a manner that is consistent with Christ. And that they see a group of people, a church, that is being what God has called them to be. That they're walking it out each and every day. And here in this this small portion of the Word of God, we see what I'm going to call five benchmarks that describe the church that Christ had in mind when he prayed, that he had in mind. And so the first benchmark I want us to see is the benchmark of joy. The benchmark of joy. This benchmark defines our relationship to Christ himself. I want you to look back with me at verse number 13. He says... But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. My joy fulfilled in them. You know, joy in themselves is the one thing that should characterize the relationship that exists between us and Christ. Joy should be a common trait in the life of a believer. You know, Jesus used the specific pronoun, my. He said, my joy, when talking about joy. Do you know, Jesus' joy was not something that was temporary or momentarily fun. His joy will never be found in our circumstances, but in the eternal purposes of God. God in our lives. So why? Why are so many people unhappy today? Why are so many people discontent today with their lives? Because of misplaced joy. Because of misplaced joy. Do you know, every, everywhere we turn, people are looking for something to make them happy. 
Whether it's toys or tools or clothes or cars or money, we're looking for something to make me to make me happy, right? It's all about me. It's all about what can I have? What's going to change my circumstance? What's going to change me? In fact, it's gotten so bad in our culture that now we're turning to some other people to try to fill that God-sized hole in our lives. And church, I want to tell you something. I want you to I want you to hear me out. If you get nothing else today, balcony, online, if you get nothing else today, I want to tell you this one thing. People are going to disappoint you. I, as your pastor, am going to disappoint you. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to offend you. Because I'm not God. Your spouse is not God. Your children are not God. Your coworker is not God. And because we are not God, we cannot fill the God-sized hole that is in every single one of us. In fact, we are always looking for something that's going to make us happy. I've even seen in people's lives where they looked for a place to go that would make them happy. I just want to throw this out to you. If you leave for vacation miserable, it will not be long until you are miserable in a really beautiful place. Wherever it is that you travel, it won't be long Joy in this life, church, cannot be manufactured because it's only produced by Jesus himself. It can't be manufactured. Everything else is just a cheap substitute in this life. How many of you uh, know, uh, maybe even just a little bit about the, the uh, football, about NFL football here in America? How many of you have ever heard the name Deion Sanders? Deion Sanders, former uh, Hall of Fame football player, two Two um, Super Bowl rings after he left football. He played nine years in Major League Baseball after that, before he retired. Do you know Deion Sanders, on the night that he and his team won their second Super Bowl, there's an autobiography about his life, and he said, on the night that I won my second Super Bowl ring, he said, I was laying in bed that night, and I had just spent nearly a million dollars on a brand new Lamborghini. A brand new car, had a house, had money, had everything that he ever wanted. And he said, I started crying that night as I was laying in bed. And I said, God, I have more than everything I could ever want. And I'm still empty. And I'm still lonely. And the next part shocked me. He said, God, please help me. God, please help me. You know, Jesus wanted each one of us to remember that He is to be our joy. That He is to be the one that fills the life and that our lives as Christians would be marked by that joy. Do you know Jesus' life was filled with joy? And as you hear that for the first time, you may think to yourself, what? Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was hung on a cross. He died for us. How was His life filled with joy? You're right. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was a man of sorrows and that he was acquainted with grief. But nevertheless, there was joy in Jesus' life. There was satisfaction in the life experience of Jesus that surpassed the joy of anybody else here upon this earth. How do I know that? Well, because Jesus' joy was rooted in his unbroken fellowship with the Father. Jesus' joy was the fruit of true faith and confidence in what God's plan was. 
Jesus' joy came from seeing the great things that God has done. You want to you know what's unique about the joy of Christ? It was never diminished by sin. How often is the, the quote-unquote joy in our life diminished by either our own sinfulness or the sinfulness of somebody else? Jesus' joy was never diminished by sin. Jesus' joy was never diminished by deception. Man, Jesus' joy was never even diminished by the devil himself. And if Jesus was so concerned for joy amongst his followers that he prayed for it, we can know that he was also concerned that we as his church today would have joy. God wants joy in your life and in my life multiplied, not subtracted. In fact, the the world and our sinful flesh and the devil would tell us something completely different. But God wants his joy fulfilled in our lives. The benchmark of joy. The second thing I want us to see in scripture here is the benchmark of holiness. The benchmark, the one that nobody likes to touch. Holiness of the individual. Uh, This defines our relationship to God himself. Look back with me at verse number 17. And we're just going to read the first part here. He says in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. You know, to be sanctified is to be set apart for holy use, which means that sanctification implies holiness in the life of a believer. You know, it was Matthew Henry, great commentator and theologian, that said sanctification is being set apart from the corruption of the world for the uses of God, is how he explained it. You know, Jesus did not just leave the disciples to sanctify themselves. That's a scary thought, is it not? That we would attempt to sanctify ourselves. In fact, Jesus prayed for their sanctification. The process by where God takes the word that he has before us and changes us to become like his son is not left to us alone. In fact, it is a work of God in us and through us. Amen, church? But there's a caveat. There's a caveat to sanctification in the life of a believer, and it is this, that we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? I want you to write something down for me. It's going to hit the screens. And if you would, just kind of hang it there. Failure to cooperate with God in the the sanctification process accounts for every failure in Christian living. Failure to cooperate with God in the sanctification process accounts for every failure in Christian living. Every failure. Do you know there is no true biblical changes towards Christ's likeness unless life and its problems are handled God's ways? If we look back to that verse yet again, verse number 17, sanctify them in the truth. And that right there is the dynamic behind sanctification. Is it not, church? Truth. Truth is the dynamic behind it. The word of God must be read. It must be heard. It must be understood. It must be applied. Sanctification is not effective apart from divine revelation. In fact, sanctification apart from divine revelation is behavior modification. It'll only last for a little while because it's done in our own strength. And guess what? You'll begin walking the same path that you were on before. In fact, 
Oftentimes, you walk an even darker path and a more lonely road when you choose and attempt to do things in this life in your own strength and in your own power. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, the more truth you believe, the more sanctified you will become. And so, church, the operation of of truth upon the mind is to separate man from the world and place them into the service of God. To separate them from the world and to place them into the service of God. We are to live a life that is changing. Not changed. Not past tense. We are living a life that is changing. Constantly being changed and formed into the image of Christ. A life that is transforming. Not transformed. It's transforming. And where does that transformation come from? But the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word through daily application. Do you know we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are to be holy as he is holy. And if the the son, if Jesus Christ was so like the father, then all of the sons and daughters of God should reflect that character and that nature Meaning that the essence of discipleship in this life is that we're imitating the character and conduct and the actions and attitude of Christ when he was here upon this earth. You know, we can't take the name of Christ and then not take his character. We can't take the name of Christ and then live like the devil. We can't take the name of Christ and then make our own rules and try to take the Bible and fit it in to our finite mind. It doesn't work that way. If we take the name of Christ, we must take the character of Christ as well. And guess what? Jesus' character was that of God. It was perfect. It was holy. Jesus said that if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. Christ went to the cross so that we could have a peaceable relationship with God. And the unfortunate thing in many church communities today is that they see holiness as something that is mystical. Holiness isn't something that's mystical. In fact, the practical side of holiness is sanctification. It's being changed, being set apart for the uses of God. You, you and I don't become holy by reading and thinking alone. We become holy by living out and yielding our lives to Christ every single day. You know, sanctification takes place as God's word is applied to the details of our life. Sanctification takes place as God's word is applied to the details of our lives. Church, I, I've spent several years counseling individuals and, and I, I constantly go back to um, a lot of Paul's writings in my counseling sessions, in my counseling appointments. Paul wrote extensively the difference between putting on and putting off. 
At the beginning of the believer's life, he always made the statement, put off those things which are of the earth, or put off worldly things, or put off the things of the flesh. And he always followed that up with put on the character of Christ. And in Ephesians 4, he said, walk worthy of the, man, of the calling in which you have been called. And he said, to love one another, to bear with one another, to be patient with one I mean, how many of you struggle being patient with people at times, right? We all have that, that, that feeling of being impatient, that feeling where if that person says one more thing, if that person does this, right? And Paul is constantly telling the believer, put off the things that make you look like the culture around you. Do away with them. Don't allow them to be in your influence, your circle. Don't allow those things to be there. Why? Why? Because we are to represent Christ. Christ isn't leading you to go drink and drink and drink and drink until you're drunk. Christ isn't leading you to do drugs. Christ is not leading you to lustful situations where you're thinking about and looking at someone inappropriately. Christ isn't leading you to murder. Christ isn't leading you to be physical with somebody else. Christ is leading you to holiness. And that holiness states that these are the commands of God and this is what we must follow. And if we're constantly being pulled in this game of tug of war here in our culture and we're not giving in to the Holy Spirit and submitting, then we're constantly going to have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. We're constantly going to be living on the fence we're constantly going to be in a state of inner turmoil because we haven't submitted to one God and one God only. When knowledge, church, is turned into action, our attitudes are adjusted by the Spirit and our actions then become saturated with love and with grace, then we're making strides towards holiness. Then Holiness is the outcome of allowing the Word of God not just to, to change our thinking, but to, to change our actions, to guide our steps. And Jesus wanted our life to be marked by, by these realities, ones of truth. And so He wanted us to have the benchmark of joy. He wanted us to have the benchmark of holiness. But He also wanted us to have the benchmark of truth. I would say the second one in this portion of Scripture that is the most difficult to live out in the life of a believer. Why? Because this identifies our relationship to the Word of God. It identifies us with the Word of God. Look back at verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth, but what does he say? Your Word is what? Truth. Your Word. Not my Word. Not their Word. Not her Word or my spouse. No. Yours. God. Your Word is truth. And truth, in my opinion, is the essential part and quality and characteristic of Christianity. And it only comes into our life as we build a relationship with the Word of God. The more contact that we have with God's Word, the greater the influence in our lives. Do you guys remember back just recently to our James study? Our James study, uh, number, number, uh, or James chapter 1 says this. The verses are going to hit the screen for you. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law 
the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You want to know what's interesting about what James is saying here? Mirrors were not invented until the 14th century, years after this was written. In fact, prior to mirrors being invented, metal was used to reflect the object. And the problem with metal was that you had to move it around so that it would hit the light just right to give you a clear reflection. And so James is saying that you had to spend time looking into that mirror so that you can see it. You have to spend time looking into the Word of God so that you can see yourself. And the element here uh, that he is trying to teach us in these verses is that we had to develop a relationship with that mirror in order to see the reflection. And the key element, church, to beholding oneself is light. It was light. The light that reflected in that metal that caused the reflection. And so here in the text, the light is the word of God. The light is the word of God. It is the perfect law of liberty. God's word. And the more time that you spend having a relationship with the word, the more your life will look like Christ's. Church, I want to be really pointed with you this morning. This is not to condemn you in any way. Balcony, online. Don't live with the fallacy that receiving the word of God one time on Sunday for 45 minutes is sufficient. Don't live with that fallacy. Don't live in the mentality that if something doesn't happen in in three days of reading the Bible, that you're just going to close it on up and set it aside and never open it up once again. We have to get away from the culture's mentality of being in a a microwave society where I can just quickly press the button and it comes. Listen, we can't log on to Bible.org and order the things that you want and they're just going to magically appear like your Amazon packages. That's not how it works in the Word of God. And so church, we need application and then transformation and then sanctification in this life and that only comes in a relationship with the Word of God. In fact, application is really where I'm headed with this entire series. How does this apply to us as a Christian, as a Christian body? How do we as a church live these things out? Well, guess what? The vision here at the well is that our people would learn the Bible and then live out those biblical truths. That we would learn the Bible and that we would live out those biblical truths. And you want to know what happens as that occurs together in the life of a church? Well, guess what? We're able to connect people to Christ in everyday moments of life, just as our mission states here at the well. Because we've learned the Bible and we're living it out, we can connect people to Christ, the one who brings hope. And so, yes, God wants the the disciple, the follower, to have the benchmark of joy and the benchmark of holiness and the benchmark of truth. But the fourth thing here in the text, the fourth benchmark is the benchmark of missions. The benchmark of missions. 
You know, and this, def- this defines our relationship to the world around us. Look back to verse 17. He sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Do you know the thought of being missions-minded and serving the Lord is sandwiched by sanctification? Did you see it? Sanctify them in truth. I'm sending them into the world so they would be sanctified by truth. Service unto God is sanctified by sanctification. And the sanctification that Jesus had in mind here was not just primarily personal holiness, though it's included, but he had more of being set apart for God's service and God's mission in mind. You know, Jesus does not merely leave us as a church in this world, but he sends us into it to, to, to be a witness for the truth of God. Do you know the, the word mission comes from the Latin word missum? And it means to send or to dispatch someone or something. A mission was placed before us and, and Christ is sending us forth into the world to bring people into the family of God. And you want to know what's unique? What's unique to the mission is that we don't merely remain in the mission because we have nothing else to do. We are positively sent by Christ himself to do the master's work. We are agents. We are messengers of Christ. Christ was the missionary and then the Messiah. He was the sent one. And so every Christian that comes after is a minor missionary. We are a minor missionary in the story of God. And we are sent out to accomplish his will and purposes here on this earth. But as I was thinking about Jesus' phrase, you know, you sent me, so I send them. I began to think about this question. How did Jesus come? How did he even come into the world? And I began to try to connect it to the ways that he's sending us still today. Um, Jesus did not come as a philosopher like Plato or Aristotle. Though he knew a higher philosophy than any philosopher prior. Jesus didn't come as some amazing inventor and discoverer of new lands. Though he could have invented and discovered anything that he wanted when he was here. Jesus did not come as a conqueror, though he was mightier than Alexander the Great himself, or even Caesar in that day and age. But Jesus came to teach truth. Jesus came to live among the people. Jesus Jesus came to suffer for truth. He came to suffer for righteousness. And he came to rescue men and women. You know that Jesus in this whole chapter does not explicitly pray for the world, yet his prayers for the disciples involve hope for the world. You know, we're sent into the world as the Father sent the Son to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it defines our purpose and our plans here at the well. And you notice the word sent here in Scripture We are to go to them because they are not coming to us. 
You know, the church was created not for the lost person. It was created for the follower and believer of Jesus Christ to come and worship the name of God. That's why church was created. And so church, we are to go out and get them because they are not coming to us. We can't just pray people into our building. We need to bring them into our building. The church is to be filling its purpose with passion here in this society, we are to be leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, meaning that we are to reach them, teach them, and release them back out. So the process starts all over again. Church, the benchmark of missions is before us. The benchmark of missions. And the last benchmark here in the text is probably one of the most important and crucial ones to the church, and that's the benchmark of unity. You know, this defines our relationship to the people that sit right here in this church, as well as even other churchgoers in our community and churches that uh, may differ a little bit from where we are. So I want you to look at verse number 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be, or that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now jump to verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You know, Jesus prayed for his disciples, but he also had a heart and a vision to pray beyond his disciples. He prayed for those who would come to faith by the testimony and the words of truth through the disciples, meaning, church, that he prayed for us. He prayed for those of us in this room who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ. He went to the cross knowing that his work was going to endure. He didn't have some vague hope in what God was going to do through the disciples. He left his work full in confidence in the work that God was going to do after he was gone. In fact, Jesus envisioned at the end, he envisioned the great multitudes around the throne of God. If you go back and you were to read chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, he says that every nation, every race, every language, every class, every social level will worship God. You know, Jesus prayed that the church would rise above their different backgrounds and understand unity, that they may be as one. You know, the oneness that Jesus had in mind here was the unity that comes from a shared life in both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't pray for uniformity or some institutional unity amongst believers, but for unity in truth that was rooted in love and a shared nature. It was Paul who wrote in Ephesians 4 that Jesus had the unity of the spirit of truth in mind when this is what he prayed. Jesus essentially gave the world permission in his ministry. He gave the world permission to judge the validity of his ministry based upon the unity of his people. The unity among God's people, Jesus said, would help the world to believe that the Father sent the Son. That the Father, you, you know that, that Satan 
works in the way of division. Amen, church? Satan wants us to be divided so that we cannot complete the work of God here in this earth. He wants us to to be so caught up in what I would maybe call non-essentials so that we are distracted from the call that has been placed upon our lives. Unfortunately, it is sad that our culture is becoming more and more divisive by the day. There are so many things that we argue and we fight for and in the grand scheme of what God has placed before us, to be honest with you, it's really illegitimate. <laughs> when Jesus prayed for unity here in the text, he looked beyond their unity to a still unconverted world which stands in need of a witness that's generated by that unity. Look back at verse 26. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I'm always overly cautious when I teach and preach uh, to give us a misunderstanding of love. How do we love the people around us? Our culture has removed many characteristics from God and run with the thought God is love. God is love. God is love. God is love. And they never talk about anything else. Unfortunately, there is no one characteristic in God that is bigger or more important than another. God is all love and all mercy and all grace and all justice and all holy all at the same time. All at the same time. There is nothing one more important than another. But Jesus received love from God the Father. And this love relationship was the strength and the sustenance of Jesus' life. And we conclude here at the end of this great prayer that Jesus prayed that that same love that was his strength would fill the disciple that followed after him. Jesus knew that it would be his love on display, his mercy, his grace on display display in men that would make a difference in this world and in the church the love of god has been as romans says in verse or chapter number 5 shed abroad in the hearts of man do you know what that means for us church that means that we not only have a command to love but we also have the capacity we have the capacity to love There is an essential place of love in the Christian life and in the Christian community. And Jesus thought it was so important that he specifically prayed for love when he might have prayed for so many other things. I've come to realize that love is the power that will help us to reach people. It's not a program that will reach people. It will be another person with passion in their heart. For someone who is hurting. Love is the protection that will keep this church right here functioning as God planned and as Jesus prayed. You know, when when we are unloving, we let our guard down and it's an invitation for the enemy to come right on in and do damage. 
Love is the picture that people need to see. They need to see an authentic love for each other here in this room. And that's how people will know that we are Christians. Jesus said they will know that you are my disciples by your fruit. You know, if you take love from joy, the only thing you have left is hedonism. And if you take love from holiness, the only thing you have left is self-righteousness. And if you take love from truth, then the only thing that you have left is bitter orthodoxy. That's all. That's all you have left. If you take love from missions, then the only thing the church has left is a conquest that we need to complete. If you take love from unity, then the only thing that you have left is tyranny in the church. So I want to I ask us some challenging questions, church, as we, as we close this morning. What if someone was to eavesdrop on your life? What, 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 if, what if someone was to eavesdrop on your conversations? What if someone was to sneak into your home? What if, what if somebody was, was to hear your little group or your little gathering? What if they spied on you? What if they watched you? I wonder what they would observe about our lives. Church, what would they say marked your lives and your relationships? What would they say? When people come into our fellowship right here, when people come into our church circle and they seek to find a place where they can connect with Christ, I pray, I beg of God on a, on a daily basis that they would experience something very different than what the world has to offer. That when they walk in here, that they see a church of genuine and authentic people. Genuine, authentic Christ followers that when they come in here and they begin to get plugged in that the actual movie was way better than the preview and I don't know about you but that's what I want I don't know about you but I guarantee that's what Christ wants he wants a, a church that loves him enough to, to cling to joy, to cling to holiness, to cling to truth, to cling to the mission, and to cling to unity. And so where, where do you need to grow in those benchmarks today? Let's pray. Father, we we come to you in this place, Lord, and we, we thank you for these truths that are not only encouraging, God, because of salvation and sanctification and, and the love and the power that you enable us to have the capacity to walk in, but God, the challenge so that we can grow, 
that we can become more uh, of, a, of a more loving and more united church, a more missions-minded church, a church who continues to cling to truth and holiness, but God, above all things, that our lives would be marked by joy, that we would be a people, that, that people see us and they want to be a part of, of the, the show, the movie that you're putting on here through our lives. And so, God, the story is being written, and you are the author. And so, God, I'm asking for strength to walk with you, to be obedient to you, to submit to you. And so, Lord, use this this series uh, as we continue to dive into your scriptures these next several weeks to teach us um, and guide us in in the direction that we need to go. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. And amen.